Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today, we'll be reviewing the core rulebook. This is part of our book review series where we review every core book in the Pathfinder RPG. Christian's core rulebook, this is the first book that came out. This is everything you need to pick up and play a game, Pathfinder. It has been almost a decade since the core rulebook was originally released in 2009. We've had almost 10 years to play the system, and this is the foundation of it. Although technically not really, Pathfinder is kind of a shoot-off of Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. Right, yeah, how far back do we need to go to say that this was the original thing? <laughs> it all started <laughs> in 100 BC. Yeah, really, the car, the foundation wasn't engineering. Really, horses, we were moving back and forth. Horses, it wasn't really founding. Like, really, feet are the foundation of moving. Listen, I get your whole <laughs> wheel stuff, but honestly, before, we just rolled down hills. All right, so get behind me, Satan. <laughs> When I, when I thought I was going to quote Jesus in one of our episodes, I didn't think it would be that quote. I think there was, <laughs> I thought it would have been a more interesting quote or when, more when relevant did, than get behind me, Satan. Oh, I thought Jesus at some point said, we used to roll down hills. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I want to say about this book is how incredibly well organized it is. There are some poorly organized rule books out there. I'm looking at you, Shadowrun. One of the biggest things I wanted to see when reading through this core rule book start to finish was... How organized is it and how easy is it to understand the game and be able to play the game? Because that's what it essentially needs to be doing. When you pick up the Settlers of Catan rulebook, I don't need to spend five hours in there and then have to flip back and forth at 40 pages. It should have a, a logical progression start to finish like any game. And this core rulebook is going to do it really well. Especially for something like a tabletop RPG, the core rulebook isn't something you're going to read through once and like, oh, I got it, mastered the system. You're going to have to refer back to these sections a lot. So the organization is going to be something that helps you learning it initially and then when you're actually playing and having to refer back to it constantly because why do you keep doing weird things, players? Please just do normal things. <laughs> Listen, just make full tech actions or withdraw. That's all I can handle right now. <laughs> all right, you can use a single CMB once a year. I'll let you. It's less important now that we have the internet and I can just search non-lethal damage and then I'll get all the rules on it. But back in the day, you definitely had to have be able to see where would I look up non-lethal damage in this book and it's got to be logical. Otherwise, I got to look back in the index and hope I can find it. As we do know, the vast majority of Pathfinder rule sets are available for free online because the core rulebook and all the other books have been published under the 3.5 OGL license. That's the open gaming license. And that's why we can have things like the Wikipedia type entries and the D20 SRDs that compendiate all the rules. So this book is 575 pages. Wow, it's a thick book, almost 600 pages. The first chapter, Getting Started, is only 12 of those. It's a short synopsis of each chapter and its purpose in the playing process. Perfect, excellent for first-time players, first-time tabletop role players especially. And it gives an example of what playing the game looks like, which is one of the first things that I do when somebody says, I'm thinking about getting into Pathfinder, or the question is, what, what exactly is d and I don't understand. Like, what do you do? You guys just dress up and throw paper mache fireballs at each other? My first answer is always yes, correct. You've nailed it. <laughs> but then my second answer is I, I, I give them a, a real-life example. Okay, you walk into a bar. What do you do? And it gives you that so you have an idea of what it's going to look like from both the player and the GM perspective. So here's what the real mastery of the first chapter is, though. 
It tells you how to create a character and there's a list. It takes you from step one to step whatever. And each step refers you to a chapter. For example, for step one, you pick your ability scores. The ability scores are listed in chapter one. Step two, you pick your race. And then it says refer to chapter two for races. Step three, pick your class. Refer to chapter three for classes, on and on and on. This is perfect. When I tried to build a Shadowrun character, I was jumping everywhere. They it, At first it started following this and then it just kind of disappeared and I'm trying to make a character. I'm like, in the, I was almost in the last pages of the book because there were some things there about character creation. Something I like about the organization of this book is that it's very player centric. The first five or six chapters are basically all immediately useful for being a player in the game. And then the later chapters are all about the minutia of GMing and the specific mechanics. But one, two, three, all the way up to basically chapter eight are all something that the players can read and learn how to make their character and then how to use their character. Mm -hmm. If you want to hear more about our take on the character creation system in Pathfinder, we did do another episode on it. It is episode number 107, Character Creation. So let's jump over to chapter two, races. The races are your core fantasy races. These are the applicable races that players can pick to be in the game. We start with dwarf, halfling, elf, half-elf, half-orc, human, and gnome. Gnome I intentionally put on the back of the list. <laughs> Why? I don't like gnomes. This doesn't just give you the stats for being those races. A dwarf is hardy and healthy. An elf is leaf but kind of fragile. It also gives you a physical description, their societal description, relations between the different races, and even examples of naming conventions for the different races. Really great to help get your creative juices flowing, especially if you're a first-time player. And then this is where we get our famous underwear pick that Caleb's mentioned several times in the Race Overview series. It's it's a it's like a, a lineup like against a wall with height, like a police lineup, but they're all in their underwear. I like it not for the underwear. I like it for the, the comparison. You can see, oh, wow, gnomes are really short compared to the elf, which is standing right next to them. Maybe we need more of this. The lineup they're all in their underwear, and then the main picture they use for each race is also that character just in their underwear. I guess that makes sense, because, like, with the equipment, it usually kind of reflects classes. And, like, oh, here's what the race looks like, but you're only really seeing their face and hands. <laughs> yeah, you're seeing their forearms. The half-orc's forearm is as big as his thigh. That's not how <laughs> arms work. <laughs> we did an entire series. We call it the Race Overview Series, where we go over every playable race in the game, not just these seven. So if you want to learn more about them, you can listen there. Now let's move on to Chapter 3, Classes. Now this is the third biggest chapter in the whole book. It's 56 pages. So we have 11 core classes of the Pathfinder RPG. The Barbarian, the Bard, Cleric, Druid, Fighter, Monk, Paladin, Ranger, Rogue, Sorcerer, and Wizard. I think 11 is a really good number to start with. Like when you first get into a table, the first time you're playing and you have like five or six people. You ask yourself, how did I get into this table? Please, someone save me. <laughs> you don't want to, like no one wants to be the same class as someone else is. Everyone wants to add their own class. Like, oh, you're being a fighter. I don't want to be a fighter then. There's also, before they actually get into the detailed description of each class, there is a short description and a list of each one of them to help you figure out which one you might want to play if this is your first time playing. This is brilliant because that's the first thing I'm going to want to do. I don't want to have to read through each entry, this entire huge page and a half, two pages about each class. Understand it. There it is. Quick little brief. Oh, let's see which class. All right. Well, the wizard says magic user. Meanwhile, I'll start reading that one first. 
And then as things are relevant, they will come up in this section. For example, the list of animal companions is on the Druids page because that's the first class that gets animal companions. So there's the animal companion and their stats. The list of gods is in the cleric section. Familiars are on the wizard section. Makes sense. Those are when you're going to want to look them up. I'm like, oh, what's the class wizard? Oh, they get a familiar. What's the rules for familiar? They're right here. The only one on kind of like, eh, maybe not about is the list of gods, which kind of like... Every character, generally, this is maybe traditionally the way you do it, every character worships a god. If I was going to look back, like, where's the list of gods? I need every character's going to need this. I want to think to look in the cleric section. This is before there was feats and archetypes and magic items and any number of ways that you can actually get other people's class abilities and just use them as regular features. Like, basically, anyone can get a familiar now. Anyone can get an animal companion now. If they had known that at the time, that's the direction it was going, they probably would have had it in, like, its own subsection. But as it stands, the Animal Companion was born on the Druid character page and stays on the Druid class page. <laughs> Christian, are you surprised to hear that we actually do a series on classes? That's right. At the end of each section, we will be plugging our stuff, and you best get used to it. But seriously, though, if you're interested in some of the classes and understand how they work, we do episodes on them. We eventually want to cover all of them. Next chapter, chapter four, is skills. The chapter starts with a description of skills, reading the skills, abilities, and all the rules of actually making a skills check, such as how does a difficulty class work? How does taking a 10, taking a 20, or 8 another work? Something they do really brilliantly here is they practice judicious redundancy. There's a table of how many skill ranks each class gets, even though also in each class's entry in Chapter 3, they're also there. And the same with the table showing which skills are class skills. This is perfect. Just that way I don't have to keep flipping back and forth. I'm in the skills thing. I'm going to want to know how many skills my, my class gets. There it is listed. In total, there are 26 different skills, and there are some subsections such as profession, craft, and knowledge skills. All the crafting rules are in the craft skill description. Perfect spot form. It's where I'm going to want to look them up. There is phenomenal tables in this section. There's a snapshot table of all skills, which class gets them as class skills, whether or not you can use them trained, what ability score they use, and which one's armor check penalty applies to, all in one table. There's DC tables, so you can quickly find the answer to resolve people's checks instead of just sifting through the text. I use this still today. Those charts are phenomenal. They're in each skill. I think almost every single skill has a chart or two telling you the DCs of some very typical checks you'd make with that skill. Each skill has a detailed description of it, exactly what you can do using that skill and how you can do that. I think people may underestimate how much of playing Pathfinder is when we see what the rules are for that. So you want that stuff to be clear. <laughs> so when somebody goes, wait, so what action is it for me to climb? Is that part of my move action? It tells you right there on the climb check. It's it's really good like that. Some of the skills border on almost being overloaded. There's a lot of things that you might ask a question like, has the, have the rules have something to cover this? And sometimes it's kind of hidden in the skills pages. Like acrobatics, for instance, has a lot of rules that you might not think apply to it, such as fighting defensively interacts with acrobatics moving through threatened spaces, moving across certain widths of ledges. All these things are covered under the acrobatic skill. Yep. And the one thing, so I'm not just entirely praising this book, the one thing I think that maybe needs some improvement so far that we've come across is that the rules for using magic items, some of those rules are in the use magic device table, and they're only like pretty much listed in the table or there's a sentence or two about it. 
And later on, when there's a section in the book about magic items and how to use them, it doesn't mention that you have to do some of the things that Use Magic Device says you need to do. A lot of the things on the Use Magic Device table could also use more clarity. They talk about emulating class skills, emulating ability scores. It's not always 100% clear, at least from the core rulebook, exactly what that means. You kind of have to make some assumption. Yeah. But if you want to learn more about the skills, we have two episodes on it. Uh, That's episode 103, Skills Detail, part one and two, because there's just so many. We had to split it up into two episodes. So let's move on to the next chapter, chapter five, Feats. Feats being one of the building blocks of your player characters, of the creatures in the world, which basically just describes something that they can do, whether they are hardier than usual, more resistant than usual, or have special abilities that they can use to make certain attacks or bolster their attacks. There are close to 200 feats, Christian. Somehow they fit them all in 28 pages. That's just the core rulebook. We have multiplied that figure many times over since many it's Many times over. We start off with a table with all the feats by type, the prerequisite, and a short description. And then after that is the list of all those feats that you saw detailed with longer descriptions. Again, awesome. That's what I need. I don't need to read through every single feat to understand what it is. I need one sentence blurbs, shorter than one sentence. I need quick little fragments of sentences so I can decide which feat I'm going to use for my character. The categories that feats fall under are combat feats, critical feats, item creation feats, and metamagic feats. My only gripe here is that the fighter cares about combat feats. The fighter gets bonus combat feats, and combat feats are not broken out into their own table. They're listed with all the regular feats, just they have an asterisk next to them. Yeah, what is my personal opinion that is the problem with our feats right now in Pathfinder and the solution to fixing it is we need more organizational categories to understand them and and be able to sift through them. Uh, I see that this wasn't a problem they could have or that they did predict so that there's only these small categories. I wish there was a lot more categories, especially now. But I understand when you only have 200 feats, you don't want 500 categories. What's absolutely awesome is that if you get the PDF version of the core rulebook, or a lot of the books, they actually have linking in the PDF. So if I go to a feat such as the athletic feat in the table, I can click on the word athletic and it will actually take me down to the page where the description of the athletic page is. That's cool. Next chapter is chapter six, equipment. So the first thing you're going to see is starting character wealth. At first, I thought there should probably be a better place to put this. But going back to the steps to making a character in chapter one, step five tells you to buy equipment. So if you go straight to the equipment chapter, there's your starting gold. There's everything we need to know to make your character. It's actually the perfect place now that I think about it. In this chapter, we have a description of all the different types of weapons, all the different types of armor. And it also includes a lot of the rules for utilizing those weapons and armor, such as it will have a description of exactly how do you calculate the attack bonus for a throwing weapon, or how do improvised weapons work. Something that's actually really important, but is only a very short description. It tells you that equipment in Pathfinder sells for half of its buying price. And that is a gigantic linchpin of the entire economy of this game. It gives the players a lot of control over how much wealth they have and how they can liquidize their assets. Just to give an example of some other system, Starfinder, Pathfinder's foray into sci-fi, equipment only sells for 10% of its value, meaning that the GM has a lot more control over the player's equipment because they can't sell the really powerful things they get 
to buy more powerful equipment. It's really up to the GM to give them, either from enemy drops or things that they find, new equipment. I personally kind of disagree with that philosophy, but this is not the time or the place, Christian. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that's how in Pathfinder you have a lot. Of, if your GM just gives you, like, this plus three dragon bane sword it's super cool your player could be like i'm just gonna sell it and you're like um <laughs> please don't well christian you've mentioned it so i automatically assume you approve kind of hidden in here is the table that tells you if a weapon suddenly becomes large sized and it was medium size how does the damage dice scale up i thought this was kind of a weird place to put it i think it's replicated in the enlarged person spell in addition to the myriad of weapons and armors in this chapter is also goods and services. Goods being more generic equipment like your backpacks and your pitons and your torches. Services being like, how much does it cost for me to hire a carriage to go from one place to another? How much does it cost for me to hire a spellcaster to cast a spell for me? I still don't know the answer when somebody says to me, how much is it to rent a room in the inn or how much is it to buy a carriage? I always have to look that up. When I first played the game, I made up a number. And then when I looked it up, I'm like, oh... Okay, I way overblew this. Yeah, we'll try not to get into the specifics of the Pathfinder economy. <laughs> How do non-player characters exist in a world where they get one gold a year? I don't know. Wait, what? Really? If you use, like, the profession rules... Hey, real quick question. Like, I know you said we're not going to talk about this, but we're about to talk about this. Go on. <laughs> if you're, like, a level one commoner and uh -huh. you're using the profession rules and, like, taking a 10 every day, you have an absolutely pitiful wage compared to an adventurer that goes out and finds, like, a masterwork longsword and sells it for half its price. They just made, like, a year's wage in a day compared huh. to, like, a farmer or an innkeeper or something. I mean, I feel like that's got to be, like... Back in ye old medieval times, it's not like the commoners and the peasants out there who are not any any royal blood were you know jumping up and down with excitement how much money they were making. Weird. Anyway, we do a episode on this 105 equipment covers and rules and stuff about equipment. You can check that out if you want to know more about that. Chapter seven: Additional rules. That's literally what it's called. This one's a little weird here. I think that they needed a section to kind of you know, the catch-all for everything that we didn't really talk about, but it really kind of seems to lack direction. But let's talk about what is in this chapter. The first thing is alignment. Description of alignment, what it is, what each one is, how to help you pick it. You talk about the foundations of 3.5 Dungeons & Dragons. Alignment remains important to this game, so here it is. Then you got your vital stats, like age rules, your height and weight for each race, carrying capacity, which is maybe the most notoriously ignored section and rules of the entire game. I can't remember the last time my GM asked me what my age was to make sure I had the proper penalties, and then also asked me how much weight all my equipment weighed. The age in particular just makes spellcasters even more powerful. Because you just get more mental stats as you get older. Well, I mean, honestly, what do you think the stereotype? You think of like an, an old wizard with a long beard. He's not young. Unless he magically grew that beard. Wait a second. Have they been deceiving us this whole time? They bunch <laughs> of like four-year-olds? That would explain why they're playing with Batguano. <laughs> we figured it out. Every wizard gets disguised self as a spell-like ability. <laughs> I knew it! If you guys don't know the joke, by the way, the ingredient for fireballs is Batguano. They're literally just lighting Batguano on fire and then throwing it with magic. Until one stands alone, the victor. <laughs> Covered in a mountain of Batguano. In this chapter are rules for movement as well they cover tactical movement shortly but that's covered more in depth in the combat section more specifically they go over overland 
movement, which is like going from one city to another in the countryside. How many miles can you move a day if you are walking versus if you are hustling? If you are hustling, how long can you hustle before you become fatigued or tired and have to stop? I'm not a huge fan of these rules. They are very punishing to small size characters because if you have a 20-foot move speed, you are basically crippling your whole party's ability to move from one place to another, and it's very punishing to low constitution characters. A lot of this requires con checks. And very quickly, you'll find out, like maybe even at level one you do this sometimes, you're just going to get a carriage or something or a horse so that you don't have to worry about this. And unless you're in a very specific kind of low fantasy campaign that's focusing on these rules and the distance between cities, most of the time your GM just says, oh, it takes you two days to get to this place. After the movement rules, they have some exploration rules, which is mostly just descriptions of how light and vision works and actually exploring, say, a dungeon. We did an episode in the Fortnite series called Roleplaying Your Alignment that talks about how uh, so maybe some of the way we view alignment and some of the ways it was viewed in the past, if you're interested in that. For some reason, also shoved into this chapter are the rules for sundering an object and how hardness works. Yeah, like I said, this entire section seems to be the most notoriously ignored section. Chapter 8, Combat. Combat is arguably half of an RPG game, especially this RPG game. We're role-playing half the time, and then half of the time, we are rolling dice and trying to kill goblins. We're trying to take them goblins, and we're trying to make them dead. Pathfinder is a very one-to-one representation kind of game, whereas in other RPGs, you might say, like, I want to swing on the chandelier so I can reach this thing or have an advantage on someone. That would typically be handled in saying that you could do it and you now have some kind of advantage. You're going to get a bonus on your next skill check. Whereas in Pathfinder, it's like, okay, well, how big is the gap between you and the chandelier? Can you make that acrobatics check? You got to roll acrobatics. Now you got to roll to balance on the chandelier. Now that you're on the chandelier, you have a height advantage. Height advantage is a very specific thing that gives you this bonus to the people below you. Mm -hmm. And because it's so one-to-one, there has to be detailed descriptions of the specific things that you are trying to do. It's not a huge section, but what is here is very detailed descriptions of the specific actions you could take in combat. I would call it dense. Yes. There's great illustrations for certain concepts. For example, attacks of opportunity cover. These are things that I still ask myself with like with corner spaces and with large creatures. Am I flanking it? Is he behind cover if he's behind that corner? It's great to see these images. There's a lot of stuff in this chapter, but the good result of having that much information is if you have a question about whether or not you can or can't do something in combat, chances are the answers are here instead of in another section. So, for example, what action is it to open the door? While not a combat action, you're only asking because you're measuring your actions in combat. So it's listed here instead of looking in gear for doors or something like that. There's a couple things listed here that aren't exactly combat, kind of tangentially combat related. For instance, the healing rules and resting rules, how much health you get back for resting. You're going to take damage when you fight, so I guess it makes sense to put the healing after the fighting. Yeah, the logical progression is it tells you, like, here's what happens when you reach zero health. Here's what, here's how much health you need to have lost to die. So then exactly the next paragraph is, okay, but if you want to heal at here's what you need to do. We did an episode, Pathfinder 103, Combat Detailed with Weapons. If you want to listen to that and get more ideas about what you can do in combat. Next is Chapter 9, Magic. Guess what this chapter does, Christian? It teaches you how to play an ongoing card game past the years that's fun and exciting (laughs) at your local nerd store. And expensive as all get out, correct. Only half as expensive as Pathfinder. Ew! Shots fired! 
It explains to you how to use magic. There's an explanation of what each thing in a spell's description means. So this chapter is telling you how you can actually utilize magic. How do you cast magic? How does a magic user work? How do I prepare my spells? Mm -hmm. In here is an explanation of what each little part of a spell means for a spellcaster. So when it says something like the school of magic that this utilizes, what exactly does that mean? When it says something like a target of a spell, if it's a cone, if it's a spread, how exactly do you use that as the magic user? There are some very useful spell area charts in here that are lifesavers, especially when I was first GMing. I reference this all the time. I still do. I don't open up the book. I can just type it, but the same pictures are online and that's what I'm looking at. There's a lot in here to go over that doesn't all have tables. For instance, counterspelling is kind of hidden in here. Concentration checks have their nice little table. Concentration checks are very important for spellcasters. You'll be surprised to hear we've done another episode covering this subject. It's episode 104, Combat Detailed with Magic. It's almost like the podcast was designed to tell you everything about Pathfinder. Chapter 10 Spells. This is the biggest part of the book. It is 150 pages. To give you an idea, the last chapters were between 10 and 30 pages. Now we're at 150. Christian, please. There are over 350 arcane spells and about 300 divine spells in this section. There's a lot of stuff. Because you need a detailed description of how each spell works to understand how it resolves, that's why this is such a large section. We already mentioned today Fireball. When you read Fireball, it doesn't just tell you it blows up and it hurts people over here for four damage. It explains what happens if you cast it underwater, what it casts if there's flammable stuff in the area. It tries to cover everything that might happen because they know their play. They're not dumb. They know you're trying to cast this spell to try to make something really weird happen. How many times have I heard my players say, let me run this one by you. And I just kind of like relax. I, I lay down and put my, I, I, I lay down. I, <laughs> I lay down, I recline and I go, Speak to me, servant. I am listening. <laughs> I thought the very, very detailed descriptions have always been the issue with magic. They have a totality to them that say, this is what happens. It's very strict. The GM can't really work around it and say that, well, maybe it works a little bit like this. Let me flavor it this way. It's that, no, the fireball can go through a hole that is this wide, but it requires an attack roll, and it melts your gold. That's going to happen. The list of what spells each class have access to is organized by level and school of magic with a short description of what each one does, which means you are going to be seeing duplicates, but just fine, because you're looking at just your class. You want to know what every spell you have access to. And then after that is a list of all the spells. Just like the feats listed the feats in detail after their list. This is listing the spells in detail after they list the spells. No wonder spellcasters are considered overpowered. They have like eight times as many pages dedicated to them than every other class. It's true. That's why like when I'm playing with somebody new and I want to get them into the game and they, I'm like, what do you, what's your fantasy? What do you want to play as? I want to be a, a spell user. I want to be like a wizard. I'm just like, man, I would really love for you to be able to do it. I'm thinking this in my head. I really would love for you to be able to do it, but I'm going to have to spend about nine hours helping you with spells and you're going to get overwhelmed when you just look at the list and you're going to pick ones that you don't even know what they do and then you're going to be disappointed in a game like, oh, this Viper spell, I'm never really going to use it. Ugh, lame. This is... One of the big problems with spellcasters is what you wouldn't think at first is a problem. Too much information. I think it can overwhelm new players. It overwhelms me. I recently made a druid, and when I got to the spells, I was immediately like, I need to play a different class. Maybe maybe I'm not interested in playing a druid. There's just so many, and especially with druid, where it's like, oh, you have access to every spell at the beginning of the day. Pick which ones you want. How am I supposed to know which ones I'm going to want? There's so many! 
Caleb, I have the perfect solution for you. Play a different class? Play fighter? Have you heard of the class shifter? <laughs> it's like a druid, but without spells. Stop. Stop. You're hurting my heart. The one thing I would... I need... <clears throat> Alright, listen here. Rant time. I'm sorry everyone who's listening to this before playing the game. They're like, I just want to know about the core rulebook. I don't understand. They're so angry at each other for this. Why would I play this game? It makes them so upset. They're making fun of the classes. I don't understand. That's what I think the internet sounds like, apparently. <laughs> listen here. I need... What, what is the purpose of archetypes? So that you could do something you normally couldn't do with the class. Ways to customize it and make it interesting. Why isn't there an archetype that removes spells from Druid and focuses on Wild Shape? Because that's all I want to do with the Druid. I don't care about spells. I don't care about anything. I want to be a bear man. What I'm level 10 and I can only transform like three times a day. Why don't you just give me an archetype? There are archetypes that are like, now this Druid's especially good at being a bear. He still has all these other magic things and he still kind of only shifts a couple times a day. We're not changing that. Please! Why wouldn't you? That's the purpose of archetypes! I want to be a good shapeshifter! It's all I want for my Druid! Get rid of these spells! Please, there's so many! How am I supposed to pick out of 700 spells at the beginning of every day? I'm just gonna have a list of my favorites! I don't know what to do anymore! My life is falling apart! I'm living paycheck for paycheck! And I don't have time to waste with your list of spells, Paizo! Though there are some cool, like, manipulate the weather spells that I'm glad I got to pick. I feel the same way about Bard. I wish, really wish there was a Bard archetype that removes spellcasting. Christian, do you really? Do you really feel the same way about Bard? Yeah, I just the don't. Same, I just don't really show it as much. The exact same of what I just performed for you in front of you. That's the same way you feel. Exactly. Okay. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. My friend Christian and I were just playing some role-playing games. Hey, Caleb, do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. You can find Trailblazers on iTunes. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, grab some dice, and join us. All right, Christian, you come across an obviously important character to the plot. What do you do? I immediately shoot him in the face. Ugh, Christian. Chapter 11. Prestige classes. I just really love picturing the guy who's listening to this podcast for the first time. Like, what is going on? I don't even know what archetypes means. Spells seem pretty cool. Well, why would you be upset with more options? <laughs> <laughs> prestige classes. There are 10 prestige classes with a short description of each to help you pick which ones you'd want to be. Christian, what are prestige classes? All right, you got to have your rant. It's my turn. <laughs> Prestige classes are <laughs> they're a carryover from 3.5. The idea is that there are some classes that you can't just start being this. Like you can't just start out being a hell knight. You have to meet certain prerequisites. You have to be strong enough to eventually qualify to be a hell knight. You have to prestige into that class. It's just another class with a certain restriction on what you need to become that class. Such as if you want to become a duelist, you're going to need six base attack bonus. From then, it's just basically a multi-class. You are taking a second class, you are adding its abilities to your list, but you, for instance, may have to be a fighter first before you become a duelist. 
In 3.5, prestige classes were incredibly powerful. Class abilities were not really dependent on level. Once you got the class ability, you got the class ability and was as strong as it was ever going to be. So multi-classing and then taking a bunch of prestige classes was an insanely powerful option. And Paizo wanted to pull that back. And what we got was what I would argue is completely useless. These are basically archetypes but they force you into an incredibly strange build, and they're not really intuitive in how they operate. I agree with you. Archetypes were introduced in this book, so if you are listening to this episode only having read this book or knowing nothing, you'd be a little bit confused. Archetypes are something they introduce in a later book that is essentially this concept, but doing it way better. Archetypes are switching some things out in your class for other abilities that you might like better or that are trying to accomplish a different idea. I think that works out much better because you take those at level one. It follows with you the rest of the game. The idea for this was okay, but poorly implemented, and we had to wait till another future book to get well implemented. They still make prestige classes once in a while. The Adventurer's Guide and the Villain Codex or whatever it was called, those I think have prestige classes. I think they did them better. I'm still just not a fan. But there's only 22 pages. It's not a huge section. It's mostly the prerequisites that make them very hard to use. The Duelist has basically become the swashbuckler class. If you want to be the duelist prestige class, forget it. Just be a swashbuckler. You're a duelist from level one instead of wait, having to wait until level seven to do what you want to do. The Eldritch Knight, which is supposed to be a mixture of martial combat and spellcasting, became the Magus class. In fact, the iconic Eldritch Knight here, um, Seth Leal or whatever his name is, is actually the iconic Magus once they introduced the Magus. <laughs> I'm very passionate because it's like variant multi-classing all over again. I love the concept of this. I think it's really cool flavor-wise that your character is gaining his way into a new classification, maybe into a new guild of people. But mechanically, it's just way too weak for me to legitimately enjoy. And this is speaking from like, we have 800 splat books of ways to cheese our ways into these prestige <laughs> classes. In the core book, forget about it. This was insanely difficult to do. For me, I think I liked archetypes better because as I level up in my archetype, I'm still leveling up my main class abilities that I've retained. With prestige classes, I feel like I have to give up progressing on my main class to take these prestige things, which a lot of times don't feel as powerful or would be cool if I was improving my magic. For example, there's one, I think, where you can shoot your spells on the end of arrows. Mm -hmm. Arcane Archer. But... I'm not leveling up my spells as much as I would if I would keep picking whatever spellcasting class I had. So I feel like I'm not as powerful. I'm not getting as good spells anymore, but I'm shooting them at the end of my arrows. With archetypes, you would switch out something in favor of this. Okay, as a wizard, you don't get your familiar anymore and you have to take another opposition school, but now you get the mechanic with your arrows. That makes more sense, and I still get to progress my spells, my main class features. That's why I like archetypes better. But anyway, this not we're not supposed to be doing this. We're doing too much. You're right. You allowed me to yell about the druid. I allowed you to yell about this. Let's move. Let's move on. This is about us, guys. This wasn't about you. Just be happy. We didn't have any episodes to shill those last two sections, okay? Chapter 12, Game Mastering. This gives you info from how to start your game to how to design your own encounters. Info that there's pre-mades out there if you don't want to make your own stuff. How to prep and run a game. Perfect. This is exactly what I need to know. I want to know how I can start playing with my friends. This is a short section about a massive topic. We have done an entire series. I can't just reference you one episode. The entire 200 series is about game mastering. It's a huge subject. There's an entire game mastering book, which is phenomenal. And essentially every book that comes out, even if it's just player focused, is for GMs. 
So the fact that there's only 14 pages here, a little disappointing. On that 14 pages, though, I think they cover the important things that they need to, and I think they cover it very well. And they even touch on some philosophy-type things, which is really nice for a book that is really just supposed to be the core rule book. Listening, I'm not complaining that I only got one scoop of ice cream because the ice cream was disgusting. I'm saying it was delicious. I need a tower. I need a tower of ice cream because it was so good. Why have you only given me one scoop? I'm running you out of business. I'm dedicating my life. That's it. Now I've driven you out. Now you're now you're homeless and your whole family's crying. That's right, because you gave me one scoop. Think about it next time. Game mastering needs to be longer than 14 pages, Paizo. Chapter 13, Environment. In here, they break down different environments, rules that are relevant to them, and ways to design environments like that. For instance, they have dungeon. Dungeon environment has rules for walls and how they operate, like whether they're made of stone or they're made of cave walls or metal. Floors in addition to that, and also a comprehensive rule set on how traps work. Then they have a description of the wilderness environment, the different type of terrain that you can be in, appropriate skill checks and hazards that exist in those terrains, such as exhausting yourself in a desert or a forest fire, an avalanche, things like that. And they have urban environments, which are just cities of any kind, where it will tell you about how wide is a cobblestone road normally? What are the rules for setting things on fire? Siege weapons are in here for some reason. I guess they couldn't really go anywhere else except maybe the equipment section. But typically when you use siege weaponry, it's on urban cities. So I guess it makes sense. Yeah, I think the way I followed it was we have rules for like traps and things that you would find in each section. Traps for dungeons. We've got hazards and terrain for wilderness. We need something for urban Throw the siege weapons in there. I, it should be in equipment, I think, but whatever. There's rules here for weather, rules here for going to the different planes, and there's environmental rules like if you're in an area of cold, what is that going to do your players, falling damage, darkness, that sort of thing. Uh, the planes and section isn't super long. I would love to have more info about that. Now I'm shilling for Paizo. I think there's a, there's a the next book is about planes. I'm actually interested about that because I feel like there's not enough info out there in the core books about planes. Chapter 14, creating NPCs. Only 10 pages. Good, because I don't want to spend a lot of time creating NPCs. I don't need that, okay? All right, I got a lot of things as a Grand Master to do. I don't need to be spending a lot of time on this. So there's rules to create NPCs. It essentially works as simpler versions of classes that are only for NPCs. Uh, you Like, they don't have any class abilities. It's just the different what class skills they're going to get and what proficiencies they have. That's pretty much almost it. And it has steps like chapter one, but again, everything is simpler. So when it tells you pick your ability scores, there's a list there of ability scores already picked out for you. Pick either, you know, like simple or advanced. The simple ones, it's 10 to strength, 10 to this, whatever. You just pick it out. Uh, there's a list of feats to pick from for the kind of NPCs you're going for. So if you're going for ranged, here's a list of good feats for your ranged guy to pick. If you have a divine caster, here's a good feats for them to pick. Makes it very, very simple and easy to make NPCs, and it ends with an example build. I normally, I didn't create NPCs for the longest time. I would just use stat books and stuff. And for season two of Trailblazers, I made my own NPCs, and it was phenomenally easy. Still took more time than I wish it did. But the rules are, are very simple. They've done it. They made they made the brilliant decision not to make any class abilities for the NPC classes. The commoner art looks way too cool. This guy <laughs> is like ready to take on the world. He has this wicked scythe. He's got his pig familiar. <laughs> He's rugged and ready to rumble. It's pig familiar. I think it's just a farmer, Christian. <laughs> I do love the idea now that farmers are the most 
powerful of druids who can have just hundreds of familiars and, and <laughs> animal companions. You're messing with me. You mess with the entire herd, son. All the cows come out. I personally love the NPC creation rules. I think it's very streamlined, which is exactly what you're looking for when creating an NPC. Later on, there are books with a bunch of NPC blocks that are maybe some of my favorite books just for how useful they are. How many times my players want to roll dice against an NPC I've made no stats for. I pull out the book. Oh, they were a city guard. There's a whole book here. Okay, city guard. Great. We also are going to be doing an episode on the NPC builder in the 300 series to take you through this process exactly. Chapter 15, Magic Items. This is the second biggest chapter at almost 100 pages. There is something like 700 items to pick from. It's a high fantasy game. You're going to need the high fantasy magic items. This is absolutely necessary, I think. So there's sections like weapons, armor, potions, yada, yada, yada. And the front of each section is rules for that section of information. So for example, for example, if you want to know how potions work, it's in the first page of the potion section. It's extremely well organized, which is good. There is... 700 items just in this book. There have been a lot of books since then. There is a huge catalog of magic items to sort through. We are eventually going to release an episode in a 300 series called Useful Magic Items and Gear, where we sift through that list and we pull out the ones that we think are cool, interesting, and useful. Next is the appendices. Here there is sections about special abilities, conditions, there's inspiring reading, which is not my gig. I'm not great at reading. <laughs> not my thing. Not when you, when you when you can't concentrate on a single thing. When you're reading, you'll find that you read the same sentence about four times because you keep thinking about, oh man, that'd be cool. I'm gonna make a druid, but what if I didn't have spells? Oh wait, I've read this sentence four times. Uh, but there's reading and stuff that you could use to help inspire your games or your characters. There's game aids. There's a character sheet, which is perfect because you just boop, put that down on the photocopier. You know, back in the day. Nowadays, obviously, you can find the character sheet online. A lot of this stuff, some of this stuff, you can find on the back of a GM screen. A GM screen is something that you, it's like a small divider. And on the front, it just has pictures or whatever so that your players don't see anything. And then on the back is rules like this, like listing of all the conditions, stuff like this you would find on the GM screen. And that is our core rulebook, Christian. What do you think? It's really hard to look at this impartially because we have had almost a decade to tear apart the bad parts of the foundation of Pathfinder. Mm -hmm. All of the good things and all the bad things from the system stem from this book. Overall, I think it's a great book and it does its job well. It's not just a compendium of knowledge, but a reference document that you will have to refer to over and over and over again. Its organization and its clarity are definitely its strongest features. Outside of that, I think it is a great contender for a high fantasy RPG. I've been playing it for like five or six years now. I think its strengths far outweigh its weaknesses. Christian, what have you done? You're not supposed to tell our listeners how long you've played the game because now all of a sudden they're like, wait a second. I've been listening to this guy like he's some guru. He's only been playing it for five or six years. And he has a whole podcast. Wait a second. We need them to think that we've been immersed in this since day one. We were part of the original playtest. In fact, we, we were like insiders in Paizo. We have to let the mystery stand. What have you done? <laughs> well, they don't know how long I played 3.5. Ah, uh, ha, ha. Like two months. I never did. I like the book a lot. Like you said, it's, an, it's hard to look at it impartially, but I want to try to as much as I can look at this, and I want to just sit down and play the game, can I? Yeah, and the fact that how well organized it is, 
I would never have appreciated if I didn't try to play something like Shadowrun, where even today, even after reading it like three times, my character, I, I needed help creating the character, and I still don't understand the combat completely. The fact that I can read this and understand it, and it has a logical A to B progression, that I'm not flipping back and forth a ton, that is amazing. Well-organized, you know, whether or not the rules are well-implemented and all that stuff, I, I want to talk about. That's up to you whether or not you like Pathfinder. But I think the book does a good job of what it's set out to do. In my opinion, I think if you wanted to start playing, you would need this, Beastiary 1 for monsters, and there's even the Wizard Familiars reference the Beastiary entry, and the first Beastiary, we did a review on that, if you want to listen to it, we did an episode on it, but it has basic monsters in it, that's why I'm not, ref- that's why I'm saying one instead of others. They can need the Player's Guide, there's a lot of new stuff in there that fills out and flushes out Pathfinder to, I think, a great game, and a battle map, if you're playing in real life, and some dice, that's all you need to play. The book constantly tells you that you and your group decide when and how things happen. If you don't like a rule, then don't use or change it. That could have just been a single line at the beginning, but the fact that they kept repeating it showed their commitment to, you don't have to be like, what are the rules? Let me see. So what are the rules for jumping on that chandelier? Oh man, these are kind of stupid. Well, then I don't have to do them. Have fun. The game is about having fun. They, they try to put out all these rules here so that you can have an answer for how to do things. But if you don't like it, change it. Do what you want. I think that's a perfect attitude to go in with this. I'm glad they had that in there. And boy, just when going through this book, I was getting some nostalgia seeing all these pictures and the art. Uh, I think some could say that Dungeons & Dragons art isn't the best. At least it wasn't the best when Pathfinder came out. When I looked at some old books, I was like, boy, how did anyone get into this game looking at this stuff? This book, the art is really, really good. It's leagues above that sort of art, old school art. I just loved seeing it all over again. I had to stop myself from just lighting, writing down each time I saw cool art to point it out. The art in the book was done by Wayne Reynolds. He is an excellent artist. Just don't concentrate too much on the feet. And all the tables in this book are fantastic. They are what I think you need as a reference book. You need to be able to look at things clearly. It needs to be, my eye needs to be able to see exactly where the information is and understand it like that. And there's so many tables that are perfect that do that for you. The book's a pretty good book. That's what I'm saying. All right, Christian, I like it. All right, get off my back. It's 500 pages. You better like it. If you're interested in playing Pathfinder, you've gotten this book, you want to know more about it, we do do an episode about the basics of playing Pathfinder. It's our episode 101, Basic Mechanics. Uh, (laughs) A little piece of trivia. We've recorded that episode like four times. It was our first ever episode ever recorded, and there's a rule in podcasting that you better keep a hold to, which is the first episode you make of anything, throw away. It's pretty much a learning experience only. We recorded it again, published it. Then later on, we went back and we we're like, let's do this one again, give it better audio quality. And then further one last time, we said, all right, let's do it one more time. This will be the first episode people listen to. Let's give it with our best quality. So we're pretty proud of the episode. We think it gives a pretty good idea of, of us and how to play the game. Oof, well, that's the book, Christian. Core rule book. It, it actually took us less time to get through it, and it wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. It's something that's ingrained with the rest of what we were talking about. Every th- we've talked about the core rule book because we talked about it by virtue of talking about all the things that it stem from. Mm-hmm. And our book review series isn't about comprehensive information. It's about giving you an idea what's in a book so you know whether or not you want to buy it. The game system is the game system. And as Paizo puts in this book, it's malleable. You can change and make house rules as you want to customize your experience. But the book is a product that you actually buy and has a certain value to it. And I think this is good value. So the book is 50 bucks 
from their site for the hardcover. The PDF is $10. On Amazon, I found it for $40. And Pathfinder has released a pocket edition, which is a smaller, cheaper edition of the book. Do you think it's worth the money? I am a computer user. I love PDFs. I like the control F function. I personally prefer the PDF. But as the foundation of I was just starting playing Pathfinder, 100%, I think it would be worth $50. For me, it was when I played back in the day because not everything was online yet. Even so, I didn't know how to parse through that information. The core rulebook is what helped give me a basis of how to do things. So back then it was for me. I would say it's worth the cheaper Amazon price or pocket edition price. It's definitely worth the PDF. The only thing that's making me say it's not worth the, the $50 price is because everything is online so easily accessed that PDF is available. For other books, I mean, that is the same for Beast Jerry 1 and 2, but I think there's so much value in that hardcover that I think it's worth it. For this, that information is so prevalent everywhere else that I think you can get away just getting the PDF or the smaller version or even just looking up the stuff online. I'm a little trepidatious to say just online and not purchase this book at all in any form because of the organization of the book and the way it takes you step one, two, three, four, and you know exactly where to go is going to help you sift through that mountain of information. If I could just yell about spells being too much information, all this is way too much information. But you also want to be able to access the entire library when you're making your character, not just this, the main classes presented in this book. So if I'm looking online, how to build a character is just not as organized as simple as looking at here in this book. So yeah, eh, if you want the $50 edition, you can spring it. But I think the cheaper editions are probably better picks. I don't need these pocket editions. Christian, can I talk about pocket editions real quick? I don't need them. Don't what is a pocket edition? I don't really even understand. They're soft covers and they're smaller so that you can... Listen, back in the day, I needed them. Back in the day, we had a backpack that was our designated Pathfinder book bag. And we couldn't even fit all the books in it. We had to pick which ones we wanted to bring to the places we were going to play Pathfinder. Back then, I would have loved to have the pocket edition so I wasn't like breaking my back, bringing our books to each game. But... Nowadays, I don't need them. My collection's all hardcovers. I don't need soft covers. I've always liked hardcovers better anyway. It looks better on my shelf. And I look up everything online now anyway. I don't bring the books to different games anymore. At the most, I'll bring like one book. The newest books, people can look at them. I just don't need pocket editions anymore. Christian, it's not for me. But does the pocket edition have all of the information, like all of the text? I believe it's the exact same book, but smaller and, and oh, paperback and cheaper. It's good for I me. Mean, it was, I think it was a smart idea on their end. They're like, hey, we want, it's a cheaper way to get into the game and still buy their products. But anyway, discussion for a different time, I suppose. I'm just so narcissistic, I believe that everyone would like to hear what my opinion is on these things. Well, there you go. That's the core rule book. If you're interested in playing, we've got a bunch of episodes on how to understand the game, how to play the game. The next book we'll be reviewing is the Game Mastery Guide. We're doing the books now essentially in the order they came out. As much as I'd like to just do all the Beast Jerry books, I think that might get boring. We're going to go through them as they've been released. So look forward next to the Game Mastery Guide. Thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great RPG podcasts, visit our website, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? Email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. This is Johan Martins. Thanks for listening. Hey, Danny. Do you want to play some D&D tonight? Oh, I can't. My parrot's going to have open-heart surgery again. Yeah, it's gonna be super boring. Hang in there, Danny. She'll pull through. But remember, when you can't play, listen.
At Tales from the Lich, we do our best to provide an immersive RPG play session with an ever-expanding library. When you can't play, listen. TalesfromTheLich.com